It's Sunday, October 14th, and from New York City, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and this is the West Block. Three years ago, Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper was voted out of office when the Liberal government won a majority. Harper led the country for 10 years, increasing trade agreements around the world, implementing controversial tax cuts for the middle class, and trying to decrease the deficit. Now the former Prime Minister is running Harper & Associates, advising international clients on a changing global environment. Last week he was in New York City, launching his new book, Right Here, Right Now. That's where we caught up with him for his first Canadian broadcast interview since he left government. Mr. Harper, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So your new book, Right Here, Right Now, yeah. starts out with your favorite Donald Trump quote, what the hell is going on? Yeah. So I'm going to start by asking you, what is going on around the world right now? Yeah, so maybe just, Mercedes, if I can, give you a kind of bit of perspective I wrote this from. Obviously, I'm, I'm involved in global business now. I, you know, manage my own consulting business that has, does work around the world. I'm also chair of something called the IDU, which is the Global Federation of Conservative Parties. So, you know, since I, really since I left office, probably beginning in 2016, we've had a series of extraordinary political events. We had Brexit, we've had the, the rise of Donald Trump, and you're seeing across Europe and elsewhere a rise of these so-called populist movements. And as I kind of made my way through the global worlds of business and politics, I've kind of been seeing some commonalities. And so my thesis is really the following, that in the era of globalization, which I think overall has been very successful, you know, we've had a billion people move out of poverty, it's mainly in Asia, but in many Western societies, not Canada, and I caution your readers, the book is, as you know, not really about Canada, but in many Western societies, um, we've had stagnant or de even declining incomes for middle and working class people. We had that for a long time, then we had the global financial crisis. Unlike Canada and many countries, you know, there were the big bailouts of the banks, the corporations, quote, the wealthy, and then slower non-growth for the rest of the population. And I think if you look back, the kind of political upheavals we're now seeing is a consequence of all that. And we shouldn't really be surprised about it. The question really is, what do we do to improve people's lives and, and you know, lead to a more positive future? When you talk about those factors driving populism, and I found it really interesting because most people have sort of this inherently negative reaction to the word populism. Right. They imagine it as something very radical and dangerous. You describe it a little bit differently. So can you lay out for me, what, what is populism? Well, first of all, I, th I think populism is, a, populism is kind of in the eyes of the beholder. The, the whole theory of populism, and it really stems out of the American-Canadian Midwest, back from a century ago is a political movement that tries to represent the views of the mass of the people as opposed to the views of quote elites and you know if you look back a hundred years in prairie societies where you know most people were farmers or laborers and but there were a handful of people who ran banks and railroads and this was kind of the the model that developed populist parties have been on the right they've been on the left they've been on the center as you know I began my political career really my elected political career in the Reform Party. The Reform Party was then described, was described itself at the time, Preston Manning described it as a populist party. But in many ways it actually stands for things completely opposite to what today's populism, we were for freer markets and freer trade and balancing budgets. So um, populism varies with the times, but I think what the movement is today, it is essentially in many countries a revolt of the mass of the people who don't identify with the views of big institutions 
be they governments or corporations or media or entertainment industry, representing the mass of the people, challenging established assumptions about globalization, immigration, markets, trade, etc. You described yourself as a populist prime minister in the book, and I found that so interesting because yeah. right now we think populism, Donald Trump. Right. What made you a populist? So I wouldn't quite describe myself that way. I would say that I describe my own philosophy as a populist conservatism. I'm you know, fundamentally, in philosophical terms, I'm a conservative. I have been all of my adult life, but we, you know, we came very much out of the Western conservative tradition, where you try to adapt conservative conservatism to the needs and the interests of ordinary people which is, you know, why, for instance, um, when we did our, as you know, we were a tax-cutting government, and we, but we cut taxes across the board. Many elite conservatives would criticize us for doing things like cutting the GST, but our interest in conservatism was making sure conservatism benefited everyone and benefited middle and working class people. So that was, that was kind of the philosophy we used in governing, and I think it's one of the reasons Canada has not had the kind of political upheaval we've seen in other countries. Now we've had changes in government. As you know, I happen to think some of those changes in government aren't very good. But we've had, there are changes in government mostly of a traditional nature. We haven't had the kind of political disruption. You know, obviously Donald Trump was a unique phenomenon in Britain. You've had the Brexit vote and you have Jeremy Corbyn in the opposition who would, you know, frankly be, be a, a very traumatic change to the United Kingdom if he ever came to office. You have new parties coming out of nowhere in Europe, in Italy, two parties that didn't really exist a few years ago now running the government. So we haven't had, I think as a consequence of the kind of, of, of way we ran the country and the kind of economic results we experienced, Canada hasn't had that kind of upheaval. Do you think we're immune to it? Because I think of Maxime Bernier, I think of the election in New Brunswick. Is it that we've just avoided it so far, or is there something unique in Canada that means it won't catch hold? No, I think I think we're not immune to it at all. I, I uh, look, I think there are many wonderful, strong characteristics of our country, but uh, you know, if we have a situation where large numbers of people are doing very badly and they feel that government ignores them or even despises them, then you will have you could potentially have that kind of populist upheaval. I don't see that today. I. You know, obviously there's changes in government in Canada, and that change in government right now is coming from, for the most part, the conventional right of centre, which I'm encouraged about. You talk about anywheres and somewheres yeah. in your book. Who are those people? So this is not a term that I invented. I'm not trying to claim in the book that everything is original. Uh, but um, there is a, an analyst who's, who's used this, and he really describes the fact that in the era of globalization, there's come to be a class of people whose lives are really international. Um, they're involved in international business or international academia. They're often married to people who don't come from the same country as they do. They're, they're essentially their lives cross borders in all kinds of meaningful ways. Identities become, um, you know, multicultural and international. Um, so those people he calls the anywheres, whereas people traditionally, people who live within boundaries, who live within their communities, who are, who are in traditional occupations, who travel only for vacation, uh, he calls those the somewheres, who are the bulk of the population. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things I uh, say in the book is that I think if you look at political debate, the framing of political debate, the framing of most media coverage, commentary, Frankly, a lot of it is framed from the perspective of the so-called anywheres, who are a tiny percentage of the population. 
And that is why I think in many countries you have an enormous disconnect. It's why things like Trump or Brexit or the Five Star, the League Movement in Italy, why these things happen. It isn't just that people are unhappy, it's that the establishment really doesn't even see the extent of dissatisfaction and the political change that is coming. Well, one of the things you say in the book is if Donald Trump, you don't consider him to be particularly conservative, but that you believe if those grievances aren't dealt with, you'll get something much worse. What does that look like? Yeah, I, I um, look, I, in, in the book, uh, Mercedes, in, in fairness, I'm not trying, I tell people, I'm not trying to evaluate Donald Trump's personality. I'm really not trying to, in any way, comprehensively rate the performance of his administration. I would say that he's turned out to be more orthodox conservative than we would have thought from his campaign, but he's still obviously a unique character with a very different style and, and, and policies that you wouldn't have seen in some cases from a traditional Republican. Um, but look, I say that the Donald Trumps of the world, the Nigel Farages of the world, one can disagree with them, especially a conservative like myself can disagree with them on some things. But they are at least trying to fix what they see ails democratic, capitalist, market-oriented societies. And um, my fear is if they don't have success or if conservatives do not adapt to the political pressures that are driving these movements, my concern is we will have the left-wing version of that, which will be anti-market, which will be for socialist or Marxist economics, which I believe would turn us in an irreversible downturn direction. The kind of global pressures the West face, faces today, the, the economic pressures many people are facing, um, a return to that kind of economic program would be, in my view, absolutely disastrous and probably irrecoverable. So I view the, I look at Donald Trump, obviously there's things that I'm uncomfortable with, but the Bernie Sanders of the world or the Jeremy Corbyns in Britain are the ones that really, really frighten me. So why do you think that left-wing populists are more dangerous than right-wing populists? Because of their economic agendas, um, fundamentally. Um, the, the market economy, as I talk in the book, is not perfect. It has to be well-governed, well-regulated. Market policies have to be selected carefully. But uh, anti-market policies in an age of global competition would be ruinous to our economies. Trade is something else yeah. you talk about a lot in the book. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because you, or at least I associate conservatives with free trade, and you're saying, look, it's not quite that simple. Uh, we've just come out of this renegotiation of NAFTA to USMCA, and you raise a lot of concerns about China. Why do you think we need to be concerned about China? Because I believe that the imbalances with China are a very serious problem. Um, as I say in the book, as you know, I'm an economist by training, and a lot of economists will say the fact that we have a deficit with China uh, doesn't matter, and no form of protectionism can possibly work. Um, look, those who say that trade deficits or trade surpluses don't matter and protectionism can never work forgot to tell the Chinese because the Chinese are building their economy through a policy of deliberate trade surplus and domestic protection at home. And the situation we have got is that the Chinese have wide-ranging access to uh, uh, North American, European, to Western markets. But the fact is our access to the Chinese market is still very difficult. I saw this when I was in government. Basically, we can only sell to China what they want to buy, when they want to buy it, what quantity they say they want to buy it, for how long they say they want to buy it. And, and this, is, this is a structural imbalance that is developing. 
and it has meant the one-way flow of jobs. Um, you know, it's not just the China, but there are, we all know that there has been a loss of jobs in the North American Western economies, particularly manufacturing due to low-wage competition from abroad. But the problem is that hasn't been counterbalanced by export access to those markets. And that problem has to be rectified because it has, frankly, say it has cost uh, it has cost jobs and opportunity to working middle classes in our countries. And that's part of what you argue is driving this populism. So I, I have to ask you this, this interesting chapter in the USMCA that requires notification if you want to do a trade deal with someone right. like China. Is that the kind of approach that is helpful in, in trying to deal with this problem? Well, it's a novel, it's certainly a novel a chapter. We haven't seen anything like it before in a trade deal. Um, look, I think it's very interesting in that I think it's, as I've said, I think it's an opportunity for both Canada and Mexico uh, to work with the United States on dealing with access to the Chinese market. We don't want protectionism. We want to see greater access both ways. And we haven't had the kind of access to the Chinese market we need. And all three countries are suffering from growing trade imbalances with China. So I think this is an opportunity for our government to work with the United States uh, frankly, on something that we could not do on our own. I think it would be very difficult for Canada alone to try and fix that structural trade imbalance problem. Okay, well, we have to go to a break. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to the West Block. We're talking with former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Uh, Mr. Harper, one of the things you talk about in your book, to a great extent, is immigration yeah. and how that can drive populist forces and, and how to direct it. What is your vision for an immigration system that works? As I told a lot of leaders around the world, I think the foundation of Canada's successful immigration policy has been that our immigration policy has always been primarily legal in nature. And in too many countries, United States, Europe, a substantial part of the immigration flow is illegal or what they call irregular. And two things happen when, when that occurs. First of all, there is not public support. Um, public support is ultimately built through the political and legal process. But the other thing is there's not integration uh, because, frankly, people are not welcome there, live in the shadows. Um, so, look, first and, first and foremost, the system has to be legal. And then, as you know, our government in Canada, we pursued a policy that we tried to attune it even more to the economic needs of the labor force. Obviously, there will always be family reunification, humanitarian refugee streams, and immigration policy, but a successful immigration policy for a 21st century economy has to be geared to economic need. And in my judgment, this is a real problem in a lot of countries. It cannot be targeted primarily at low-skill low workers. Low-skill and low-wage workers are already under tremendous pressure in the global economy, and bringing in large numbers of immigrants like that simply drives down their wages, and that is uh, part of why you have the backlash. But you mentioned illegal immigration, and you talk about it in the book, too. For a long time, that was something we didn't have to worry about in Canada. It was an American problem. Uh, it was perhaps a problem in parts of Europe. Now we're facing that situation, and you talk about that can be corrosive in terms of support for legitimate immigration. Right. How, in this day and age, when people are able to just walk across borders, and it seems to be happening not just in Canada, but around the world, do countries deal with that? Well, that doesn't have to be the case. Um, there are certainly measures you can have to prevent that. Um, look, I'm not going to comment on the current situation. I know that our party has been very critical of how the government's handled this. I'm supportive of that. Um, but, you know, there are, there are ways, in terms of the United States, obviously, you know, President Trump's talked about the wall. There are physical things you can do on physical interdiction. 
But a big part of what you have to do is make sure that you know employers don't widely hire illegal workers, and unfortunately, that has been a rampant practice in the United States. When you look at immigration going forward, what do you think is the primary kind of low-hanging fruit that Canada can pick there? Well, I think Canada has the foundations of our immigration policy are sound. Um, it is about you know finding. First of all, I believe that people, generally speaking, who want to come to another country are prepared to make that decision. Are people who really want to belong and want to integrate, and want to be successful, and if they bring skills that are suitable to a modern economy, particularly technical skills, and we see that in a lot of immigrants, I think that's a recipe for success. And then, you know, obviously you have to have integration policies that help with language adaptation and things like that. But you know, Canada, look, Canada's, we have our problems, and part of what we thought was important as a government is we don't. We don't lie to people and say there are no abuses. When there's abuse, we try and deal with it. But by and large, Canada is a model for pretty successful, diverse, uh, and economically uh, and economically productive immigration policy. And so, I think it's a real strength, and I think it's one of the, one of the reasons I talk about our policies in the book. It's one that other countries can learn from. And actually, fascinating enough, it's one that Donald Trump himself cites as an example. You talk about carbon taxes as well in the yeah. book. Uh, you're very critical of them. I am. And you don't think that they can work. Is right. there ever such a thing as a conservative carbon tax? No. Um, a carbon tax is not an environmental policy. I've, I've said this when I was in office, I'll say it again. Carbon tax is not an environmental policy. A carbon tax is about is a revenue policy. People who want carbon taxes want money for the government. The level of carbon tax you would have to have to actually have impact on usage of, of fuels and, and emissions would be astronomically high. In fact, what appeals to a carbon tax, for all politicians, left, right, and center, is that you know a carbon tax isn't going to affect behavior, and therefore the revenue stream from it is going to be very reliable. And it's going to be reliable over time. And as you know, my conservatism, and I have a strong view that conservatives have to be tax cutters and certainly never tax hikers, and a carbon tax is just a tax hike. And frankly, uh, I say I don't comment a lot on the current government, but we all know that the current government wants a carbon tax because it, it can't raise the GST, and this is a backdoor way of raising the GST. And I'm, look, I'm pleased to see in Canada that more and more people in various provinces are figuring this out. How do Conservatives approach the environment in that case? What's, what is a Conservative environment? Well, we did a lot of different things on the environment. Um, obviously, preservation and conservation is a big part. Uh, you know, I think we. We protected um, more marine and land areas combined than any, you know, any previous government. Um, on the area of climate change and emissions, I'm a believer that there are really two things you, you can do. In the near term, um, I think you can, the most effective thing you can do is actually just setting environmental standards, setting emissions standards within the confines of existing technology in some cases simply moving the dirtiest technologies as we did with some aspects of the coal industry, just moving that offline. In the longer term, you've got to have, um, you've got to have technological change that produces cleaner energy sources at affordable prices because as I look around the world um, and I see what's happened with emissions, the only emissions reductions have occurred where countries have switched from coal to natural gas or coal to nuclear for economic reasons. And so 
you've simply got to have the kind of policies that produce those kinds of decisions because populations will always choose economic growth over what emissions may do 100 years from now. They'll always choose their job today over an emissions target in 100 years from hence. You talk a lot in the book too about international organizations and in an era where you have Russia and China yeah. increasingly dominating that space, the US, and you talk about this becoming not necessarily more isolationist but more nationalist, do you think that organizations like the UN or NATO still have a place and can Canada keep them relevant? Well, they still have a place. Um, I think we just need to be realistic about what they are, what that place is. You know, in the case of the United Nations, uh, my father always used to say the United Nations is a forum for everyone, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, we shouldn't expect the United Nations to be a paragon of human rights because a lot of the countries at the United Nations don't practice human rights. It's a global forum, and global forums, it's important there be global dialogue on key issues. NATO is a, is a mutual defense pact that uh, occasionally has had, there's, there's a lot of debate in NATO over what its mission is, but occasionally has had wider mission in terms of the protection of freedom and democracy around the globe. So I think there's room for these things. I think that the big change that has come with the Trump administration, and I predict is going to continue, is that we have been used to the idea <clears throat> that the United States acts as a kind of a systemic player. The United States is not strictly focused on its own interests, but on kind of global parameters of stability, peace, trade relationships, that the United States is in a sense the protector of the system. As American power declines because of the rise of other powers, I just think it is unrealistic to expect that the United States is going to act as a systemic player. The United States is going to act more and more in its own interest. And I think the challenge for a country like Canada that is so closely tied to the United States by economics, by values, by interests, the challenge for us is to make sure that our partnership with the United States is strong and that we are working together wherever we can on mutually shared objectives. Last question. Do you think that conservatives understand what is happening with populism and that the movement is able to respond to it? Uh, time, time will tell on that. I would say this, that if you look at, as you know, I'm, I'm saying in the book that we have not just the rise of populism, we have increasingly, I see the spectrum realigning. It's almost a spectrum of populism on one extreme and elitism on the other. And um, a lot of traditional center-right conservative and traditional center-left liberal coalitions are under pressure because of that voter coalitions. But it's actually on the center-left that you see the worst effects. You know, you've seen the Labour Party in Britain taken over by the extremists. The Democratic Party is close to that in the United States. You've seen the Socialist Party of France, the Social Democratic Party of Germany, just Socialist Party in Italy, these Democratic Party in Italy, these parties have, are, are almost coming apart. Um, I think conservatives are better placed to, uh, to adapt because I think the fundamentals of what we stand for, the necessity of having a market economy but making that serve um, um, you know, greater public interest, and also our belief in traditional institutions like faith, family, the nation state, nationalism. I think these things allow us, and our less ideological nature allows us to adapt. So I'm optimistic we will. I see conservative parties that are adapting very well in some countries, like I think it, frankly in our own country, and others that are adapting not so well. But I think it's really the center left that is really much more threatened if you look at what's happening around the globe by the rise of populism. Mr. Harper, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. 
York City is one of Stephen Harper's favorite cities. We decided to take a stroll through the financial district. Take a listen. When you're out and about, and you're in, say, New York, does anyone ever recognize you and come up and talk to you about your time as Prime Minister? Um, it does happen on occasion. They're usually Canadians, not always. Um, yeah, yeah, it happens once in a while. What do they say to you but, about But it? I have to admit that one of the things that's nice, as much as I love my country and love Canadians, it's, it is nice to be unrecognized when I go elsewhere in the world. You get a little bit of anonymity. Yeah, I like, kind of enjoy it. Yeah. I, I'm curious to know, too. Um, as you know, I was never a camera and microphones kind of guy. The kind of the fame of the job was never an attraction to me. So what is it like for your family now being out of office? Oh, we're, we're really enjoying it. Look, I, I said I spent 10 years in the best job in the best country in the world. But, um, you know, my wife and I are having a great time as private citizens, and it's great to be back in Calgary where friends and family are, and not too bad to be making a little bit of money, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. And what, what kind of things do you do now? What's the average day like no for Stephen Harper? Is there is no average day. Yeah, no average day. I'm on the road about three-quarters of the time on business. So, you know, I, I do that. I, we do a lot of different things for a lot of different businesses, and I have my... My hobbies as well. Uh, so, you know, no average days. I'm not bored. Still lots of hockey? Yeah, I still watch hockey and a lot of football too and a bit of curling. Do you ever watch the media and hear your name come up? How does that feel when you're no longer in power and you hear Stephen Harper back well, in the I know, media? I know you guys don't believe this, but I haven't watched a Canadian news broadcast or read a Canadian newspaper in 15 years. Wow. <laughs> So you're the opposite of Donald Trump, I am who, who likes opposite. to sit in his bedroom and watch. I am definitely the opposite. I do follow, uh, you know, I kind of follow the headlines and I follow international news, but I don't, I don't, you know, I, I never did follow, I never did follow my coverage closely in Canada, even when I was in office. Why not? Because... Is it distracting? Yeah, it's distracting. I, I, I actually think it's, it, it, I don't think it helps you run the country properly. Uh, you know, I don't think you need to be focused on those kinds of things. You need to be focused on longer-term things and people's needs, not the day-to-day. -day. So what made you decide to put your thoughts down in this book? Uh, well, you know, I'd been giving speeches um, along this line for a couple of years, and uh, it just seemed that, you know, given my current roles, both my, my global political role as well as my business role, that... This was kind of a logical thing to do, and who knows, there might be a market for it. I think we're doing okay on Amazon, I hear. <laughs> on Amazon. Yeah. So, when you were writing the book, what was the message that you really wanted to convey in 2018 when it seems like, you know, as you started the book, what the hell is going on? Yeah, what, yeah. What is so going the, on? So, the real simple message is don't, the, this political upheaval, do not dismiss it, do not ridicule it. It is very serious. It is very real. It's happening for real reasons, and we have to have real um, we have to have real thinking to address it. Uh, if we do do that, we are entering a world of technological progress that should give us like really unlimited human possibilities compared to my kids, my grandkids should have better lives than I have by a thousandfold. But if we screw it up, the consequences could be very serious, and I am worried that it is getting screwed up in a lot of places. I guess. I'm interested with populism that, that you don't necessarily think it's the problem in itself, but more the reaction to it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think populism is strictly a reaction. 
What about resources? Because it was something that your government was big on. And in the book, you talk about the importance of jobs. And there's always the argument that natural resource projects like Trans Mountain pipelines produce jobs. How important is it to be able to get Canadian resources to market? And if they're not in a country like Canada, does that drive costs? Absolutely, it's critical. Um, one of the reasons that working class people have done comparatively better in Canada over the past you know, decade and a half has been because we have a resource industry. Um, manufacturing and resource industries provide a lot of opportunity for blue collar people. And people who target uh, resource industries are targeting blue collar opportunity. And I think it's terrible. Um, I think we can be environmentally responsible without shutting down our resource sector, but unfortunately that is what is happening. How long do you think this populism trend is likely to go for. It will go as it will go as as long as a large mass of people who are are not doing well, it will continue. Unless their concerns are being addressed and their lives are improving, it will continue. And if it is not addressed it will grow worse. And if it's not addressed it will eventually have implications that will be um, that will be will really harm us in the long term. Which is why I think it is so important that conservatives in particular adapt. Um, and address these concerns. And is that, I guess, where it's interesting you connect that to populism? Because is that where populism goes to violence when we have these concerns about some of the extreme right-wing groups like uh, neo-Nazis, white supremacists who have been popping up? How do you contain that? Yeah, I'd say, I, look, as I say, populism can take many forms, and obviously it can morph into, there can be extreme forms of unconventional political behavior. And by the way, not just on the right, on the, in this country, on the left as well. Uh, obviously, as a, as a free and democratic society, you must avoid uh, political action through violence. That is the single thing that would undermine a free and democratic society more than anything. Coming up on the bull here momentarily. Yeah. You signed all these free trade agreements, but that's partially what you're saying is free trade in itself is not inherently good or bad. No, I didn't say that. I think that trade is kind of inherently good, but not every commercial relationship is automatically a good relationship. Do you think USMCA is a good deal? Uh, it's un un unequivocally a good deal for the United States. Obviously in Canada, I think the truth is in Canada um, it's more challenging, but it still provides us with relatively um, comprehensive and good access to the American market, and that's the important thing. Um, but, you know, I, I would agree with Mr. Shear's comment that for Canada, it's kind of NAFTA 0.5. Thank you right. so much. Thanks. That's your show for this week. From New York City, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and we'll see you back in Ottawa next week.